being ethical is not easy when it's not convenient. You're not gonna get the applause, believe me. But when you do the right thing, it's never wrong. And you get to sleep at night. Wow, what a story. You're just setting the tone for the whole company. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode today. I have for you Mercedes. I see Nana, who is the CEO of Comet USA. Now, if you're not familiar with Comet, they're the world's or one of the world's largest dental instrument tools and process companies. And she's leading an organizational transformation of a company, by the way, that was founded back in 1923. Now, Mercedes has lived and worked in Europe, Latin America, and the U.S., small, medium, and small and large organizations. And her background includes companies that you know, like Walgreens. Premier, BSM Medical, Last Group, and Ogilvy. The theme of her career was quite interesting because it's focused around her passion for healthcare, being curious about learning new things, and she's driven to find solutions. Two big challenges. Mercedes, welcome to Lead the Team. Hello, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's it's an honor. You've had amazing leaders with you, so very, very humble and very honored to be with you today. Yes, and I see that we that you're connected and a friend of Casey Kalpin, who is a former alumnus or a current alumnus of Lead the Team, and uh, glad to have on someone from the Premier Connect Connected uh, organization here. Yes, I worked there about eight years ago. Now we were colleagues back at the time. She's a big shiny CMO now. So well, yeah, she is. And so let let's just build a connection here. I think this is so cool. So she skyrocketed quickly to the C-suite. And so have you. I mean, here you are. I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. I'm like, oh my gosh, she just starts with Comet. And then they're like, hey, uh, hey, Mercedes, why don't you just become the CEO? Tell us about that rapid. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's like the ultimate job promotion. It was. It was not that easy. But yes, I had become, I started in Comet about two years ago as the head of marketing and product. And I became the kind of the second hand for the CEO uh, rather quickly. I had mm-hmm. my hands in all the strategic uh, projects we were having. We're small, so we wear a, a lot of hats. And and at the time, the company was going through a transformation, looking at the strategy mm-hmm. for 2025. And they decided they needed a different approach for business. So they decided to part ways with the CEO. And they didn't have anybody lined up. So the current managing director in, in Germany stepped in as the interim CEO, but he was in Germany. So everybody was a little bit freaking out here. Like, what about the day-to-day? Mm-hmm. He's not in the system. What do we do? So I raised my hand and I said, hey, uh, how about if I become your chief of staff in the meantime? I can make the oper- operational decisions. I can funnel any requests, keep you updated, and then have a smoother transition for the next CEO. Uh, he agreed. He he loved the idea of giving that position more structure. I continue being the head of marketing, but I was doing the job for a couple of months, two or three months, and I realized, well, I'm kind of doing the job, and already had some internal people giving me uh-huh. like, 
why you're not the CEO? I would vote for you. It's like, well, that, that's nice, but that it doesn't work that way. But yeah. we're that, all going to uh, take a vote, right? And we're going to make Mercedes the CEO. No, it does. It, it, it's not like not a like, like she's running for a mayor. Not quite, but it gives <laughs> me the the, the confidence. Great, like, though. well, I don't check all the boxes, but uh, would you mm. consider me for for this? You know, for the selection process? And they said, well, I'm glad you did. But you'll have to go through the same process as all the external candidates and don't get mad if you don't get it. We appreciate you. Don't get mad. It's like, hey, just an honor. <laughs> we don't want to lose you. No. But this, you're, you're not so, guaranteed to get this role. Okay. Not at all. And Got they're it. German. So it was not a courtesy uh, interview, believe yeah. me. Okay. All right. But I went through it. I prepare a business case. I prepare a very detailed mm. three year plan. Eight interviews later, I got the job. So it was very exciting because they definitely, you know, they appreciated my my current performance, but they also hired me on potential and the passion to really uh, try to to help out with with the company. You know, one so, of the things I take from that story that have has popped up in a few other of our interviews is that hey, if you want to be the CEO, if you want to be a C level leader, don't wait around on the job title to do the job because you were chief of staff. You were not, there's a big difference between chief of staff and CEO in terms of probably the job description, but you decided, Hey, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this thing. What was it like in the moment of sort of be when you realized, Hey, I'm actually doing the CEO job here, but I'm not CEO yet. Yeah, pre pretty much. Because like I said, we were in uh different, different, different hats, but I was making a lot of decisions and I realized, you know, this mm -hmm. job is about really making decisions and, you know, as informed as you can. And I mm -hmm. did not check all the boxes, but I mm -hmm. knew what good looks like because I have an experience with all pretty much all the functions, having done okay. product. And, because you hadn't been CEO of another company. You'd been C-level, but you had not been a CEO until that moment. No, no, right. I hadn't. Right. Um, and people kind of surprised about my background because it's mostly marketing and product. But if you do marketing well, you should have a key component of the strategy, if not leading the, the business strategy. Because mm -hmm. you know okay. your customer, your value proposition, what to focus on as a company. And if you do product well, you also get to work with all the functions. You work, obviously, with marketing and sales and with the customer, but also with finance, with regulatory, with R&D. With logistics, supply chain, so you get to touch a little bit every everything. So it should be a good springboard for for leadership roles, but not as common. So so for me it was a matter of like yes, uh, these are my gaps. This is how I feel. This is how I'm gonna fill them, and this is the type of people I need to support me in in this role. Well, what's it like? You were you were born in Spain, right? Yes. Yeah. And in which part? In Madrid or outside of Madrid? Madrid. 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 Okay. What's it like being someone of Spanish origin, but CEO of a U.S. company? Well, actually, I think it helped me because I, yes, born and raised in Spain. I lived in Europe, worked in Europe, mm -hmm. but I've been 20 years in the U.S., 20 plus. So mm -hmm. I, I've always been that bridge between those two cultures and know which 
which one is coming from and, and, and how to work together in a, in a better way. I've worked in other U.S. companies working with Europeans that are usually butting heads because they don't understand mm. the cultural nuances and how, you know, where they're coming from. And, and I get to do that pretty well now. So it's actually helping me having those two cultural backgrounds. And being from Spain is not only European, but I have a tie to Latin America. So when we work with other markets down there, um, I also have that that tie, that sim- similar origins and background. Okay. So, so what does the rest of the world, specifically, I'm thinking about U.S. leaders too, what can they learn about leadership from Spanish culture? Well, that's a, that's a great question, but I think it's a good mix of I used to work way too many hours actually in Spain. They they have these this stereotype that we take naps and we take long lunches, which sometimes do, but it's it's mm. it's very intense. It's very intense. We do have to take our breaks, but um it's very hierarchical. And and that's why I came back to the US, to be honest. It's I think we the the positive thing about working with Spanish is the social component. You have to build that relationship first before yes. you get into business. Very relationship driven, like like people would probably heard of in, in like Latin America, right? When yeah. you work there. It's very relationship right. first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You gotta build that first, that trust, that confidence. Mm-hmm. Women are underrepresented in the C suite. That's just like a statistic. I don't remember what it is, but it's a small percentage. It's very small. And where so where do you where do you draw your inspiration from? Well, from other women, but in I I try not to make it about a gender. I try to get inspiration from other leaders that um, that connect with my values. So, for hmm. instance, I I yep. follow you know Sir, Sir Richard Branson. He's super employee centric. Yes. And, you know, you take care of your employees, they'll take care of your customers. I, I totally follow that. Yes. Um, you know, for for instance, yeah. some, some someone on your on your podcast, uh, the presidency of Simmer Biomed, um Ivan Spaniard. Yeah. yeah. Went, oh, I didn't know he was a Spaniard. I, I got the accent. Yeah, he's from Madrid. Oh, I didn't know. He's from Madrid, yeah. I didn't maybe that's the connection. But he mentioned something <laughs> All about all the great leaders come from Madrid. They all know that. <laughs> Um, but he mentioned something about if you feel like you gotta go to work instead of you get to go to work, like find a different path. And that's what I've been doing, you know, throughout my career. If I was not passionate about what I was doing or it, it was not connecting, like I said, with my values, I, I I found a different way. All right. So love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to circle back, but there's so many other things I want to ask you. So I need to move on. So you're there, you know, you come in as CEO and then you wind up in the Wall Street Journal. Now, the Wall Street Journal, why in the Wall Street Journal as a new CEO could go either way, right? It's mostly, oh, I don't want to be in the Wall Street Journal because that could be bad news. But for you, uh, it was about really like dramatically decreasing turnover in your company. Mm-hmm. And I believe the number was from 50% down to 15% in a year. Uh, obviously, I'm going to ask you what the heck you did to do that, but <laughs> but but set the stage because you because you come in as CEO, and you probably have and you need to create a transformation, and you could do a lot of things, but it sounds like you prioritize this. And, and so, so why'd you prioritize it and, and what'd you do? Absolutely. We had a massive 
uh, turnover problem at the time. Part of it was all the transition we've had in the company. People got anxious what's going to happen with the business, some left. But we were losing a lot of salespeople. So for me, it was number one. It's, yeah, reduce that turnover and increase morale. Mm-hmm. And then also work on some operational efficiencies that were hindering uh, how we implement projects. But the turnover problem, I, I tackle in different fronts. Uh, but like I said, mostly employee-centric. So we we took a look at our compensation plan. We created a new one that was a lot richer if you overperform. We'll look at the base of most of our salespeople and created ranges that were more competitive uh, with the rest of the industry. We're small, but we wanted to be competitive because that was that was very important because we were losing people like for $10,000 and that was ridiculous. So I'd rather mm. pay that than lose you. Uh, we also created career paths, so we're still working on those. So they see a, a future with, with Comet. Uh, we started to spend a lot more on training, and next year we're going to make a massive investment on on a three-year sales process training for the field mm-hmm. and also the internal people. And we start implementing new tools, like we're going to implement a new CRM next year, a new ERP, um, and things like that. And then a lot of work-life balance initiatives. And that's, I think, what was kind of the tipping point of people like, okay, this must be a, a decent place to stay. And we worked a lot in rebuilding our values because we had lost them a little bit along the way. So mm-hmm. I was very hardcore on on starting with our values and building everything from, from that point up. And yes, I mean, those initiatives were great to reduce turnover, but they also positioned us to, to grow and scale our growth, which is what we needed to do. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So in the journal, you said you implemented a corporate policy of meeting, no meetings after 4 p.m. or on Fridays. Yeah. Yeah. And so why did you make that policy? And right out of the gate, you made that policy. I did. And what's the response you got? Mm -hmm. So it was not only after four, but also before nine or at lunch. Before nine or after four, because people are stressed out with their commutes, those who go to the office and they're dropping kids off, picking kids up. It's it's adding a stress. And then lunch times, it's also people can take a break and mm. guess what? Eat or work out of your home or walk the dog and have that break so you have a productive afternoon. And then after four, again, it's who is productive after four? Like unless it's a crisis. <laughs> It's an exception. Like I am definitely not. Don't make me make a hard decision after four. So mm-hmm. we also backed it up with data. So we use a platform called Cloverleaf uh, to help increase mm-hmm. emotional intelligence of our team. So we all make assessments and we know our strengths and how to communicate better with each other. Uh, what's our preference way of working? And one of those assessments was when are you most productive throughout your day? Lo and behold, 90% of the team are more productive between 10 and 2. It doesn't mean they're not working before or after, but it means that if you want the brain power of the team, mm. meet during those hours, not at 4 o'clock. So that definitely helps. And then Friday afternoon, there's no meetings at all. 
because I would like people to focus on wrapping up the tasks that you couldn't do throughout the week and then get ready for next week. So that way you can really go to your weekend with peace of mind that you know what you're doing and you don't have to focus and worry about your to-do list throughout the weekend, which is part of that work-life balance and protected that mental well-being, which is not only um, that flexibility and that, you know, focus time, but then when you go home, you can focus on being with your family. So you implement that policy and what happens? Well, it's not mandatory. Like there's there's exceptions. We work with global. You have the sales team, but people have been following it. I was surprised. Yeah. I thought it was going to go, you know, fizzle out, but people really it, were They're sticking it. with it. And so they how was that it. impacted? Well, obviously it improved turnover quite a bit, but how does how does it impact the productivity of the company? I think it does because again, we, we're trying to meet when, it, when it's necessary, really make sure that there's a goal, there's an outcome that only the right people are included in those meetings mm-hmm. because it, it's gone insane, the amount of meetings and most of them are not productive. But the way it works is because uh, we have reasonable workloads and how we got there by fiercely prioritizing. So mm. for marketing, I implemented the Agile marketing methodology. I don't know how familiar you are with Agile, but it's the way IT kind of develops their products. And I'm, I'm using that across different functions. So it pretty much means that you have, let's say, a nine-month project, campaign, future, feature, whatever it is, and then you chunk it out in, in four quarters. And then each mm-hmm. quarter, you have two or three weeks of a spring where you allocate your resources and your time to specific projects and tasks. No more, no less. So, and if something comes up, then something else will get, you know, downgraded to the bottom of your list. So we prioritize fiercely, like I said, um, tying everything we do to our three strategic objectives that everybody's aware of and everything else, you know, will, will get done later if it's really relevant. So by making sure that people are working on the right things, it's a manageable workload. They have a task list that they know they can finish and not a ton of things are going to pile on. And that gives that peace of mind, like I said, that mental well-being of knowing what you're working towards and it's a reasonable amount of work that you can accomplish in, you know, 40 hour, 45 hour week. Powerful. It seems like you're going sort of checking below the hood of the car, you know, when you came in as CEO. So when you become CEO, I suspect they're going to say, Hey, you know, they didn't say Mercedes. It's okay. If the business uh, is stagnant or declines, right? They're going to say, no, you're here to grow the business. But what you go to is you start checking below the hood and you're like, Hey, we need a manageable workload. We need to become better prioritizers. We're going to revisit how we do our meetings. So you were, are you, You're a believer in helping them develop their own kind of operating system, helping the employees understand how you want them to prioritize. Did you like train them? Did you just talk about it? Or what was your, because like for me, when I worked in corporate, my bosses were always like, look, I'm going to give you an ungodly amount of work to do. And it's up to you to figure out how to do it. And I'm not going to help you. (laughs) You're the other. You're the other part. Other way. So, how, how did you impart this 
this change? Yeah, not not my style. Not just just drop drop a bunch of work and not help you out. But it's no. When I look under the hood, it was it was a big surprise. I must say, and I had to work with a team on upskilling people, finding the right talent, upskilling our tools and technology, and set up a lot of processes that were non-existent. So always working with a, almost like a startup with the bad habits of five, 15 years old, which is when we established our company in the U.S. So in global, wow. they have it much better figure out in the U.S. We're still going through growing pains. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they need a lot more structure and I'm a fixer. So I think that's that's what it was a good fit for me. But no, I gave them the, the structure about um, agile methodology because it, it gives you a framework. It's very, mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's very flexible and like it's, name it's agile so you can adapt it to what you need as a company but it gives you it gives you a way to help you to really understand how to prioritize how to set it up how to have a backlog of projects mm-hmm. but then how do you allocate those resources you have two or three times a week quick huddles to move projects forward then you do a retrospective of what well, what didn't. So there's some planning sessions. So it gives you a framework to really make that work as opposed to just, hey, here's your bunch of work, go figure out. Really? And oh, good. No, and I'm taking that methodology now to the rest of our functions as well. Yeah, I, I see the plan that you've planted strongly here. It's just like agile. A lot of it's about teaching everyone to prioritize in the same kind of way mm-hmm. they got to understand what's important to their stakeholders to the team to the ceo you know you're gonna i mean if you really think about it most companies operate with their employees making their own priorities about work and they're guessing they're like well i think this is most important because if you don't help them do that the human default is to work on what's easiest and then procrastinate the hard stuff but a lot of times making progress, even if it's slow progress on the hard stuff, is more important than just spending your day doing a bunch of easy stuff, which usually involves just replying to emails. Yes, absolutely. You you do have a lot of planning meetings with the stakeholders, like you say, up front to set up the expectations and the key things to work on. And then you touch base and then you present your results. And the good thing about this also is that it should help you innovate. Mm. Because when you prepare a project for nine months, a campaign, and, and you don't touch base in between with a customer, it can work, but it can be a flop. And when you put all those resources, <laughs> maybe it's not yes. a flop, but guess what? You play safe. You don't, you, uh, you're not hmm. bold. But with Agile, you can, you work on, I don't know, three weeks of work. That's all you're risking. You get it out of the market. You get feedback from your customers and then you build on that. So you know that you know you can make bolder moves and, and challenge what you're doing. Otherwise, you keep doing what you're doing because you don't want to be, you know, failure. But you don't want to waste resources either. Yeah, it's so good walking that balance with strategies like having an MVP or a minimally viable product to test the market and get feedback. So, like you say, when you get a little feedback on a product that you're working on, you can be bolder in how you go tackle it because you know already getting a, a positive response from key stakeholders and whatnot. Uh, such a such a great approach. Now, you say values-driven culture and that you felt like when you became CEO, 
that the organization there had, had lost a little bit of its way on that. Um, or, or did you say, hey, I, I think we should have these other values and we need to add them? Or, hey, these original values that we had, it doesn't seem like these are really being lived out in the culture and in work. And we need to double down on that. Which was it? Yeah, it, it was it was the latter. So we, we had really strong values as a family-based company that was mm-hmm. again, founded out 100 years ago. And then the global company kind of revamped, made those those values more relevant to our you know, day to day or, you know, our, our day now, which may have not been the same 100 years ago. So um, along the way, with all the changes and the transitions, they they kind of went into, you know, the second row of, of what we need to focus. So I kind of brought them back and really tried to make them as mm. tangible as possible. So mm. I, I, I worked um, we have a newsletter, monthly newsletter. Every other month, I talked about one and what does that mean to leave that value. And then the employees actually vote for the coworkers that exemplify that value yeah. best. Yeah. And then we give them an award, we recognize them, and then we talked about the next value. So it makes them like, what does that mean uh, for their lives? Make it really, like I said, really tangible, not just words on a wall, on a website, but something they're, they're going to live on. And it's bringing back that that spirit, that family spirit that really was the great thing that attracted me to Comet uh, in the first place. Yeah, I love it. I think a lot of people talk values, but they don't make them real to the team or their employees. And identifying people actually doing them in the business, I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. I'll, I'll remember talking uh, in one CEO interview. It was more of a startup situation where he found it. And he's like, yeah, we got around 100 employees and we we're really trying to establish our corporate culture. And what I did was, or, or what he did was identify one employee on the front lines that seemed to be like the perfect employee. <laughs> he said, I just went and spent a couple of days with them. And just wrote down what about them was so admirable. And we based all our values on that person. I was like, wow, that's not a bad, yeah. not a bad way to go. Uh, so when's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career? And how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? Well, that that's a great segue from the previous the previous question, because there was definitely a twist in my life when I had to quit a company and a job that I loved because mm. my manager was very unethical. Oof. And, and that that's key to my heart. So I won't mention the company or that person. So I call them they, but they, they were terrible boss. But I can deal with terrible bosses. You learn a lot more from those than the good ones. But that person tended to to lie here and there, but then uh, they took credit from something we hadn't done that would impact our bonus at the end of the year. So for me, that was just wrong and fraud. <laughs> and uh, I did my due diligence. I, I and I brought it back to them and make sure that give them the opportunity to backpedal, save face, and do the right thing. They didn't agree, uh, so I took it back to the chain. Uh, their boss. The CM all the time, they, you know, put it under the rug because it would have affected their bonus as well. So I took it out to the chief of ethics and compliance. They agree with me. They didn't do anything about it. And then one of my colleagues brought it up as well. And she was put on a performance plan, which was totally 
retaliation. They mm. didn't have anything on me, but they could do that with her. So I took it up to HR, but nothing came out of that. So mm. the whole team under this person quit within a few months. They still didn't do anything. So there was an a company a company that approached me about another opportunity. And I took it because it fit with my career, but I, but that by then I had a massive target back in my, you know, in my back, and it, it was a great company on on paper, but didn't align to my values. So that taught me um, how to really carefully choose who I work with, try to find those values ahead of time the best you can, and then I love my job right now because as a leader I can uh, protect. Not only those who can have the courage to speak up when something is wrong, but I can and I will do something about it. Wow. And and that's a massive value that I really set a clear message when I started. I had to make really difficult decisions early on to set that message uh, about a couple of people that were not being ethical and, and make sure that everybody understood we're not going to do business at all costs. And we all going to be, you know, in behaving, um, you know, with integrity at all times. So being ethical is not easy when it's not convenient. You're not going to get the applause, believe me. But when you do the right thing, it's never wrong. Mm -hmm. And you get to sleep at night. Wow, what a story. And such a good point that when you're ethical, you don't get the applause. All the time. You never get the ethics award. I'm sure in science somewhere, there's like bioethicist of the year or something like that. But in business, it's just like, hey, you know, you're ethical. Congratulations. But it's so important because you're just setting the tone for the whole company. And if, you know, if your company, like if you stayed in that company, obviously what had happened is maybe a senior leader just kind of let that slide. And what a senior leader lets it slide once it just sends a huge cultural message to the company of hey you know we can fudge that stuff around here a little bit mm-hmm. and, and once you fudge go. some things you can fudge others and that yeah. that that's just yeah. too important for me to just stay there so. yeah and it's even harder when financial incentives are at stake it could be thousands of dollars multiple thousands of dollars and also if someone has has a huge track record of, of success. They don't want to blemish that with, I mean, it's, it's just a lot of pressure in a corporate environment. They want their families to be proud of them. They want to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It could be. It is hard, especially when you're dealing with high performers, but not ethical. That's when it's, it gets hard, but I, I didn't care and it happened. Yeah, and now what's really cool is you're a, you're willing to share this story and how impactful and hard it was for you because you had to have that conversation a lot and just really sending a message to your team, to your customers today. Hey, we stand behind what we do. This is the culture that I'm set that that, that I'm really setting forth as a senior leader, and it ultimately I think it makes you more charismatic as a leader. Uh, if if you're willing to stand behind this and, and really take an ethical approach. Hmm. So good. Wow. All right. That I think that's pretty much a mic drop on the entire interview right there. <laughs> but I will offer it up. You know, I've I've got questions. I'd love to hear about growing up in Spain and how that informed your leadership. 
the one trait you wish you could instill on every employee or three success strategies that all employees can understand. So I'll just kind of, those are three possible questions. Maybe pick one that you'd want to tackle and uh, and we'll go to. All right. Let, let's start maybe with the second one about the trait that I wish all my employees had. That's right. You wish all your employees could have it. Why is it important? All right. Let's go for it. Uh, there's a book called Originals by Adam Grant that hmm. my previous manager recommended. And I know you're always asking about recommendations. So yes, I'll throw that I out am. there. And it's about innovation. And I follow something they said, and I tell my employees to do that as well. It's uh, challenge your default settings, mm-hmm. which refers to the fact that the people who made the most impact in this world have challenged the status quo and, and find a different ways of doing things. So innovation is not just coming up with breakthrough ideas, which is great, but also like stepping back, look at how you're doing your work. How can you do it better? How can we improve customer service? How we can treat our employees and our customers better in a day to day? And it's not about um, it's not about don't bring me um, problems, just solutions. No, but if something's not working out, yeah. um, don't complain about it. You know, set up what do you think is the ideal uh, situation and map it out to get there. And if you don't know how. That's fine, but then let's get a team together and, and and let's make it work. And it's also not about blaming, pointing fingers, and getting stuck what has not worked in the past mm-hmm. or why we got into this situation, but how to move forward. And you always find more people that are complainers than not, or that are resistant to change than fixers. Yes, but we can all innovate if we just mm. challenge what we do. And try to find a better way to do it. Yeah, I like that. It's someone's got to identify the problem, mm-hmm. but don't just stop there. It sounds like you're challenging your team. Hey, let's let's innovate, and it might be a, a couple of steps. It doesn't have to be a huge monumental step initially, but giving your team, your entire organization, in your case, permission to go out and tackle these, I think, is huge, and it's really develops a positive mindset in that realm. So, so good, Mercedes. Uh, Put in the cherry on top of the interview today. Mercedes, what's your parting thought for our listeners? Uh, Speak up, take risks. Don't be afraid to bring up ideas. Ask the hard questions and and be confident in your potential, especially my my message to women is just believe in yourself uh, because, you know, it's funny when a woman applies for a job, they usually like they have to check 80% of the requirements. When a man does, they just go for it, even it's half of the time. I've and, seen that research. Right? Yes. That's research based. Yes. It is true. It yes. is true. So yeah. you know, keep in mind that job descriptions are a list of insane requirements looking for unicorns. You may not check all the boxes like I didn't for the CEO, but if you're self-aware of what your gaps are, you have a plan on how to tackle them, you're surrounded by self uh, by the right people and and keep moving up. Don't you know, don't be afraid, be confident and, and go for it and, and find something you truly enjoy doing. That that'll give you the passion to go through obstacles, ups and downs. Uh, be bold and, and like I said, just enjoy your your life. Find that passion, your why, your purpose, and it'll it'll be amazing. Thanks, Mercedes. So good. Thank you, Ben. 
If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.